I'm going to be reading from the book of Deuteronomy this morning. We are moving away this morning for a week, uh, as Mike has been mentioning, to focus on the creeds of the church um, from our series, Sola Fide, Faith Alone, in the book of Romans, chapter 3 through 7. And I'm going to be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, a very, very central and important Old Testament passage to the Israelites. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Let's pray. Lord, we gather today, everybody in this room or watching online has just such a full plate of life situations, concerns, weights, questions. Lord, today we're looking at historic things, things that are central to our, our walk with you, our faith in you, as we consider the creeds. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us that you would give practical value and application to us as we consider this together. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we have taken a step away from our sermon series, Sola Fide, Romans 3 through 7, Faith Alone, intentionally. This phrase, Sola Fide, is one of the three prominent slogans of the Protestant Reformation. Um, It was a time when people were attempting to reform the church by returning the church to its moorings, doctrinally, biblically. And it seemed like a good time to us that are on what is called the common life team to build in a Sunday in the midst of this emphasis to reflect on historic statements that have been used in the church called the creeds to talk about why they were formed, what value they can have, the importance of them, and to just reflect on them together. The word creed is actually from the verb credo, which means I believe. A creed is a summary of I believe declarations. The church did not originate the idea or the concept of such I believe statements. As a matter of fact, I just read one a few moments ago in Deuteronomy chapter 6 where God says to the people of Israel, this is what I want you to teach your kids. I want you to put this, put it on your forehead, inscribe it on your your hands, inscribe it on the doorposts of your house. This principle and this particular passage is the most prominent credo statement in the entire Jewish faith, it is called the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. The phrase begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This was the theological understanding that Jehovah God, or Yahweh, God wanted the Israelites to have regarding himself in great contrast to the people around them around them, the surrounding them. The people and the nations and the tribes and the people groups surrounding Israel had a totally different view of God. It was a view of God of, of 
God was a, well, there were multiplicities of gods. There were gods that were not transcendent to creation. He was not an infinite, sovereign, masterful God. Their gods were a part of the natural order. And so there were river gods and fertility gods and gods of war, gods of the sea, God of the sun, gods for healing, gods for fruitful harvest. But Israel's God is dramatically different. Israel's God is Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. There is one God that superintends all of the cosmos, that before the cosmos, before there was creation, before there was matter, there was God. And this declaration, this picture of a God who is master of all creation, transcendent over all peoples, the creator and sustainer and director of all that is, he alone deserves your devotion, your love, your service is what the Israelites are to pass on to their families and to their community. In the early decades of the Christian church, the men who had been discipled by the apostles These individuals that were called the earliest of the church fathers began to recognize in their congregations and amongst Christendom at large that they needed a standard of belief, a a, a descriptive phrase or a series of descriptive phrases that would highlight what it meant and what identified someone who was a follower of Jesus Christ. And of course, the New Testament You know, there was one book to the Philippians, and that had been sent to the Philippian church. And there was one book to the Romans, and that had been sent to Rome. And, and, and there was one book that was written by Jude, and, and, and that was sent out by him. And, and though there were copies made, no one was walking around with a New Testament canon. Nobody, nobody was walking around with a, with a copy of these books in their pocket. And so they began to think, what are the truths that unite us as Christians And they began to form this into a creedal statement, although they didn't call it that at the beginning. It was actually called the rule of faith. And basically, it was something that they would use when a person wanted to be baptized, identified themselves as a follower of Jesus. They would ask them to declare certain beliefs and agree to these, these particular statements regarding their beliefs. This, it had a formal name. And I, I've told you before, in my office... I've been able to purchase all of the uh, volumes. It's, it's a shelf about that long, all the volumes of all the first three centuries of church writings. And in that are a number of the church fathers that talk about this thing called the rule of faith. Now, the word rule there is a, a measurement word. It's the same way we use the word ruler. It was talking about the fact that, that these essential truths became the measure of genuine faith in Christ. This was the rule of faith. And as the years passed, somewhere into the second century, somewhere between 100 A.D. and 170 A.D., they changed the name of this rule of faith to the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is almost verbatim what Irenaeus and Origen, uh, some of the other, Clement, Some of the other writers say was the rule of faith. They're almost word for word the same statement. The Apostles' Creed is the first and most foundational agreed-upon creed of the church. Now, this morning, I want to focus on two things regarding the creeds of the church. Number one, I want to 
respond to people's hesitance with the creeds. And secondly, I want to present what I believe are some historic and personal importance of the creeds. So first of all, people's understandable hesitance with the creeds. Some people would argue they can promote dead orthodoxy. That some of you are here and come from denominational backgrounds that have included the recitation of the, of the creeds, in many cases, every week. Every week you would do the creed. You may have even done confessional statements. And for some of you, there was tremendous beauty in that experience, a very meaningful experience as you identified with his historic statements. You may be in a church like ours, and you miss that. That's a, that's a real piece of your spiritual journey that you miss. Others of you that have that background may have a different experience. For you, and you're really who I'm addressing right now, you might feel, well, for me, it was just dead. It was dead orthodoxy, dead, dead experience. It was just rote, mechanical uh, recitation. And I saw lots of people that that's all it was, and maybe it was that for you. Or maybe you're here from a free church background, a background that does not have formal liturgy, a background that never really typically reads the creeds or the confessional statements. Um, and, and to you, you've just always assumed that anyone who did quote the creeds in their services, I mean, it would just be mechanical. I mean, it'd be like, it'd be like praying with written prayers that somebody else wrote. I mean, it's not real. But while it is true that the creeds can be that, just like for some of you this morning, during the worship time, you were not engaged in the words of the song. You weren't thinking about what was going on. Yes, certainly the creeds can be done the same way. It's possible that people do have an experience with the creeds that is utterly formal and utterly rote and utterly mechanical. I've mentioned this story before, the, the, the most unique example of that was a conversation my father had. My father was an executive over at RCA, GE, you know, as it made its, its uh, transformation with each buyout. But when he was there, he was with another guy, and uh, this guy knew my father was very serious about his faith. And he said, Gene, that's my dad's name, Gene, you can't be serious. You can't seriously believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin mother. I mean, come on. It doesn't make, it's impossible. My dad was surprised because he knew this guy's spiritual uh, denominational orientation. And, and he said, um, he talked to me, he said, Don't, doesn't your church recite the Apostles' Creed every Sunday? I said, yeah, I've been quoting the Apostles' Creed since I was a kid. My dad said, would you quote it for me? So he pressed the button in his mental uh, apparatus and, and came out with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered... Oh. He realized what he had just said, born of the Virgin Mary. He had just said, I believe, but it never connected. He, he, he had never consciously realized, I'm saying I believe this, but it's just words. It's just, can it be that way? Of course it can. Can the creeds be that? Absolutely. But I want to suggest to you, they don't have to be. And today I'd like to think about the function of the creeds and potential role in them. 
But before I do that, I want to raise two other quick concerns that someone might have. Number two, someone might raise the statement they can replace the authority and importance of the Scripture. Why do we need other statements in Scripture? I mean, I'm a Bible guy. I believe in the Bible. It's the authority for my faith and practice. I mean, I believe the Bible from cover to cover, A to Z, Genesis to Revelation, 66 books. I'm there. It's what I live for. It's what I read. It's what I build my life on. Why do I need somebody to write some man-made, creedal statement for me to read and reflect on and to recite with other people. I'm a Bible guy. Isn't the Bible sufficient? Well, I I sure think it is. I'm not arguing that we do something because the Bible is lacking, but I do think there's value in recognizing and reciting and being aware of some of these creedal statements, and I'll try to explain that, how I think that even enhances our relationship to the Scriptures. Number three, and this is more of a cultural thing, cultural group think in our day is very contrary for any form of belief, especially truth proclamations. Nietzsche, who's still a hero among many contemporary thinkers, speaks for many when he distinguishes those who inquire from those who believe. In other words, if you believe... You obviously have stopped inquiring. You, you've turned your mental brain, your mental capacities off. You're not an inquirer. You're just a reciter. And then you throw it in that you're reciting a creed corporately with other people, that, that, it's, that it's, you know, it's a herd mentality then for the intellectual elitist. A herd will always believe what they're told. Well, again, it can be that. But I'd like to give three reasons why I think the creeds have value and why we're trying to familiarize you with them in our Common Life booklet this week, Common Life book this week. So here we go. Number one, historic and personal importance of the creeds. Number one, they give clarity to the Christian faith. They clarify what are essential beliefs. I've already mentioned the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 did that. It clarified what God wanted every Israelite to learn and, and constantly rehearse, 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 build it into the very fabric, fabric of your home, your community, that this is the God we know and serve in contrast to the cultural gods around us. The historic creeds tend to highlight what is true about God himself. This was true of the Shema for Israel. It is certainly true of the early Christian creeds. I want to read to you the Apostles' Creed. Here's what it says. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You'll notice that this statement is a declaration about the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in its, in its primary form. It's talking about the work of the Godhead in the world. This is the, the creedal reality that he's presenting. Now, 
there's a difference between creeds and confessions. And this is important to understand, to understand the purpose of the creeds. Confessions were larger statements. They were much more extensive. They were much more um, involved with church life, with governance, with spiritual practices, much more specific. And in the church confessions, there are different confessional statements historically that have formed the foundation for the, the overall doctrine for different church and Christian traditions. Some we are fairly familiar with. Uh, 1530, the Augsburg Confession is the foundational doctrinal confession for the Lutheran Church. Westminster Confession of Faith is that for the Presbyterian Church. London Baptist Confession of 1689 is the foundation of most free church, um, Bible churches, Baptist churches, uh, statements. The, these confessional statements are bigger, and they, they, they focus on some of the distinctions. There's not a lot of difference in those statements, but there's some. And they tend to, to demarcate different Christian traditions and, and denominations. Now, confessions are different from creeds. Creeds in themselves are statements that reduce the Christian faith to its bare evangelical essentials. C.S. Lewis talks about this as he talks about his book, Mere Christianity, the classic work. And C.S. Lewis, who was an Anglican, clearly delineates in the preface to Mere Christianity. And the book, Mere Christianity, was basically Lewis saying, I'm going to present here, and he does it in philosophical and, and intellectual forms to, to present Christianity to unregenerate people who have not bought in, but basically he says, all I'm trying to do is present the bare essentials, what mere Christianity, the mere essentials of Christian faith. And he said, I'm not trying to convince you to be an Anglican or, or, or even a Protestant or a, a Baptist or a Presbyterian. He says, I'm not dealing with that. I'm talking about the bare essentials that historically have united all Christians all those who are true embracers of Jesus Christ as the center of their lives, their Savior and Lords. He makes this interesting statement. He says this, My book is more like a hall out of which doors open into several rooms. If I can bring anyone into that hall, I have done what I attempted. But it is in the rooms, not the hall, that there are fireplaces and chairs and meals. What he's saying is, my goal is to get you into the hall. I don't know which room you're going to go into. I don't know what church tradition you're going to be drawn to, but that's important because he says that's where you really do life with other Christians. That's where you really form your own personal theology in its full sense. It's where you serve. It's where the fireplace is. It's where the meals are. It's doing life together. He says, I'm just talking about the hallway. The creeds are the hallway. The creeds are that which all believers of all traditions who have truly embraced Jesus Christ as Savior, it's where we meet. The Apostles' Creed was the defining statement for all of the early followers of Christ. Yes, these are the bare essentials of what a person needs to embrace. These are the things we agree upon that are the foundations of our, our faith. The creed provides the clarification of what Christian faith is, but 
they also clarify the faith in real-time moments. Now, this is, this is where it gets interesting to me. That the creeds were written for moments of great confusion about truth in the church. The Apostles' Creed was written in a world of a pagan view of God. And they start off by saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That was so shockingly different from the view of, of Greek mythology and the, and the Roman pantheon, the concept that, that all the gods were, were a part of the natural order. And then Christians come and say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, who is the creator of everything. He's not one God. He's not Jupiter as opposed to Apollos or, or Athena. He's God superintending all of them. He created, without him, there is nothing. He created everything, ex nihilo, out of nothing. The statement goes on to talk about, and he who created everyone is he to whom everyone is accountable. And Jesus Christ is God who, who came among us. And then, he, and then the Apostles' Creed makes this striking statement. And Jesus Christ will be the, living, the judge of the living and the dead that this God is whom we're going to answer to because he's created us and designed us. It was, a, it was a shockingly different view of faith and God who's foundational, but the early church needed it. They didn't, they didn't have anything except the spoken, what they had heard spoken. They didn't have New Testament records, and so they agreed on, on those things that were essential to understand to give clarity to the church. But there were other creeds that came forth, one of which, and this is also in your Common Life book this week, is called the Nicene Creed in 325 B.C. It was born completely out of time of confusion within the church. Within the church, there was a man named Arius who started what's known as the Arian Controversy. And basically, he came out with this question. He said, well, I believe, and he was a prominent teacher in the early church, and he said, um, I believe that you know, Jesus is the Son of God. He's our Savior. But as God's Son, He was created by God. He is not eternal. He was born at a time. He came to the world. He was created by the Father, but He is not God. He's the Son of God. This was a big deal because historically, all of the church had, without really processing it, had embraced Jesus as God. They know that there were clear declarations in the New Testament, but nobody had ever thought about how to delineate that. You know, we do things today, like most Christians in churches, in our church, if, would be familiar with this statement. Jesus Christ is 100% man and 100% God. I believe that. He is 100% human. He is 100% divine. You say, I don't know how that works together. I don't either. I'm not God, and that's okay. But he is. He's both. That statement was not made before 325 A.D. People didn't think about those things. They had an assumed reality, but Arius pushed them. And so they were forced to think, what is it that we truly believe? And here's what they came out with. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. They were arguing for the centrality of Jesus' deity. But what happened? It came out of real questions. 
But our Christology, our doctrine of Christ, is so much the richer because of those that had to fight through how to word these things, how to verbalize these things. The same thing happened in about 500 A.D. in what's called the Athanasian Creed, which is again in your Common Life book. And this one, if we could not put that up. Thank you. Okay. I do this at staff meeting. I can't stand it when I'm going to be presenting something, so I make everybody put their paper face down. The paper is now face down, so I can so you don't steal my thunder. Basically, the Athanasian Creed was designed, here's the historical context. The historical context in around 500 AD was there was tremendous confusion over this whole issue of the Trinity. Now, they didn't resolve it, so everybody says, oh, I get how God is. You know, I get how he's three and one. It all makes sense to me. No, what he did was give them verbiage. It gave them talking points to be able to put it together. There are talking points you use when you try to think about the Trinity that they didn't have until the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed was, he is coming and he's saying, there's no way that God can be, you know, either there's three gods or there's one God. It can't be three, one, three in one. So they wrestled with this and they wrestled with this and they came up with this statement. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable, the Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And then this great statement, and yet there are not three eternal beings, there is but one eternal being. Many of you have made this statement, I've certainly made it, and I believe it, that God is three persons in one being. There is one God, but he is known and manifested and exists in three persons, can I explain that? No. But we didn't have those verbs. We didn't have that verbiage. We didn't have that, that capacity to even speak those things. And that doesn't mean that for a Muslim who, who really struggles with the idea of the triunity, that when we say, well, there's three persons in one being, they're going to go, ah, oh, well, now I got it. But it does mean at least we're giving clarity to what we believe. Prior to that time, people were, yeah, I mean, is Jesus God? Yeah. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yeah. Is is the Father God, yeah. So are the three gods? No. So how does that work? I don't know. Well, in 500 BC AD, you didn't get a pass. People pushed it. They were confused. There was, there was situations of schism in the church. And so God brought all these leaders together and had them clarify, there are so many areas of your faith that you just assume everybody's known this, everybody's had these words to explain, everybody's had this way to process, that have come because the creeds have been formed of people wrestling and, 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 and working through, in some cases weeks, trying to come up with a statement that would agree with historic faith, but would also give agreed-upon verbiage to expressing how these realities were. The same was true in the Reformation. When the Reformers came out with their three solas, and there were five associated with the Reformation, but these were the three that the Reformers themselves particularly used. One is sola fide. What did that mean? It's only faith. It's not faith plus works. It's not part faith that I believe in Jesus, and part I perform to measure up to earn Jesus. No, it's only faith. And they said, and, and, and again, there was confusion about this in the church. There was so, sola gratia. 
that it's not just grace plus law. No, it's only grace. If God is not totally gracious, it isn't partly your performance and partly God's grace. And then sola scriptura. This is a big talking point. In the early church, the issue was sola scriptura because some were saying, well, yes, for faith and practice, we need a guiding point. And one of those will be scripture and the other will be church tradition. The reformer said, mm, no, it's sola scriptura. It's the, it's the guide for faith and practice. It's our rule of faith. All of these things came out in real historic moments, real time, real places, real people. The church's theological depth has grown through these historical moments that called for new clarity on doctrinal issues. Now, here's my question. Will there ever be new creeds? And if there will be, what might they address? We've seen creeds addressing the nature of God, the work of God, the nature of salvation, the centrality and sufficiency of Scripture. What might be next, if there will be anything next? Well, it would be the height of arrogance for any of us to think, well, I think it's going to be this. You know, next is going to come this one. I, I see a whole on my theological checklist of this, I think we need more delineate. We don't know. But I do know that it will involve three things if God does. If he brings together, and he will do it with, with world-impacting leaders of different historic belief traditions that agree on the hallway of faith, that are agreed on the Apostles' Creed, but might come from different church traditions. And if they do... And he does gather them together providentially. We know that three things will be true of the creed. Here's what we know. Number one, it will be speaking to a doctrinal controversy that raises questions that divide and confuse the church. Number two, we know that the creed will affirm truths that have always been assumed by the church but have never needed to be clarified and defended. This is really important because I'm not saying that in 325, the church all of a sudden came to this new idea that maybe Jesus is God. Or in 500 A.D., they thought, wow, you know, maybe, maybe there's a trinity that's involved. In no, they, they, they knew that. They believed that. They had taught that. But they had never had to clarify what it meant until great confusion in the church arose over those issues. So if there is something that requires a creedal statement that God raises up, it will be something that has always been assumed by the church and taught by the church, but has never needed to be clarified and defended as it does today. And third, it will result in greater clarity and unity for the church to speak as one voice. Obviously, none of us could project if there will ever be a situation like this or how it could happen, how God might bring together church leaders. But I will say, and I love history, and I will say this, that in my little thimbleful brain of knowledge, I have never seen in the last two centuries a doctrinal issue that has raised more confusion not only in the Western church but in the worldwide church than the doctrine of anthropology. I believe 
every major question that is being confronted with the church that the church is confused over has been centered in the doctrine of anthropology. The church has never questioned historically how to define marriage. Never. The church has never struggled with answering, are there really two genders, or, or is there a genderless human, human experience, or do people change gender? The church has never had to struggle to the degree that it is confronted with now of the practices of sexuality, practices of mercy killing and euthanasia. Every one of those is an issue of anthropological doctrine. And there is no questions that you are being confronted with by people outside of the faith or within your own family or within our own church to the degree that the questions of anthropology are. I will suggest to you that is happening all over the world in the church. I believe if God did raise up a new creedal statement on the doctrine of anthropology, which he could do. I mean, it isn't going to happen by me and a few of my local buddies that we get together once a week, which we do for prayer. You know, we're not going to gather together our little minuscule brains to provide the answer. If he does, it'll be people that are of, of great stature in the church, great intellect, great theological and personal piety, theological information and, and, and wisdom, but if he does, what they will come up with, if they are speaking for the, the historic reality of Christian truth, is that they will affirm the things that have always been true of God's definition of what human marriage is, of what genders are, of what sexuality is, of, of the inappropriateness of, of euthanasia. All of these things will come as clarifying because the church is confused. Denominations are, are in tremendous confusion today. It is not only in America. It is not only in the Western world. It is throughout the world. There is tremendous confusion over these. And I have no idea if God's going to raise up a creed. I don't even know if Jesus, Jesus may come back and all this is resolved. But if he doesn't come back, I don't know if he's going to raise. But if there's any area that I could see him raising up a creedal statement for the benefit of all of us to get some clarity it would be in the doctrine of anthropology. To me, it would fit what I understand the creeds to be, a doctrinal controversy that raises questions and divides and confuses the church, a creed that affirms truths that have always been assumed by the church but never needed clarification and defense, clarity, and a statement that would provide greater clarity and unity for the church to speak as one. That was a long part, and I'm, I'm going to move fast here in the last part. The first thing that I think creeds give to us is clarity. The second thing they give to us is guidance in interpreting Scripture. There is a system of truth from Genesis to Revelation. There is a consistent portrayal of God in the midst of a redemptive story that He is enacting on earth. And there are consistent beliefs that are foundational to the Christian faith that are developed and explained throughout the 66 books of the Scripture. <clears throat> Excuse me. The creeds give the aerial view. 
They give the big picture view. They, they look down and they say there are certain things as you jump into Leviticus and you jump into Psalms and you jump into the book of Romans and, and, and the book of Revelation, there's a story that's going on that God's re- writing a redemptive story. And as you look from the aerial view, you'll find out it's always a sovereign God of creation that's writing the story. It's always God the Son who is, is the agent of providing that work. That it, and it is always the Spirit of God that is applying it to people's lives in every generation. And as you look, you'll say there are certain pieces of the story from the aerial view that the creeds give you that you need to embrace and hold on to. They'll enable you to make sense of the story as you jump into Scripture's The creeds leave room for difference of opinions on many areas of interpretation and church doctrine. But they remind us that you can't say you are a Christian from a historical and biblical definition if you deny the virgin birth. If you reject Jesus as God, if you disdain the idea that humans are created by God, if you throw out the triunity of God or roll your eyes at the bodily resurrection of Jesus, that historic Christian faith embraces those things. It's the hallway where Christians have always met, and it is what defines ultimately Christian faith. And they give you a sense of direction in your reading of the Bible. It is this God, this Father, this Son, this Spirit, that you will find at work in all its pages and all its teaching. The third thing that the creeds do is they bring connection with the overall Christian community, both past and present. Now, why this was needed historically, when the early church was growing and developing, they lived in a, in a cultural context where religions, most of them, and it's still true today, Very few of them have any doctrinal creeds. That basically, belief is not nearly so central to most other religions as it is to Christian faith. Many religions put more emphasis on what is called orthopraxy than orthodoxy. Ortho is the word that means right or aligned. If you have an orthodontist, he's somebody that aligns your teeth. That's the idea, to get them in the right place, get your jaw ordered. And an orthopraxy is an, uh, 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 that you're having aligned or correct practice. Orthodoxy is having aligned or correct belief and teaching. It is the idea, and Christianity, though it certainly involves how we live, is founded on our faith. It is what unites Christians. Let me show you the difference. There are religious systems like Judaism, and Islam, each have ceremonial and religious practices that are the foundation of their their being an orthopraxy practice faith. Each have sophisticated systems of law to guide behavior. Judaism, you must do the weekly Sabbath. You must do the annual feast days. You must participate in circumcision. In the Old Testament, the, the sacrificial system guided their entire lives. It was united them as a people. In Islam, there are the holy days. There is the pilgrimage required once in a lifetime. There is the daily reciting of the words of the Quran, facing on your knees towards Mecca, reciting words as a prayer. But basically, you're reciting those words directly from the Quran five times every single day. 
Both of those religions have been able to get along with comparatively short statements of belief. They are united on practice. This is true also of Hindus, Buddhists, who concentrate on the practices of ritual and transformation rather than on uniformity of belief. Even in civil practices, Islam and, and Judaism speak. Both are addressing that their laws and principles can unite a nation, and they are actually designed to be implemented in a nation. Judaism in the Old Testament was a theocratic uh, government. The idea was God, not a monarchy, is one ruler. Theocracy is, a, is God is the ruler. And the idea is that all of God's laws tell you how to run your government, tells you how to live as a nation. Islam does the same thing. The Sharia laws are the rules of Islam from the Quran and the Hadith, which was Muhammad's writings. These laws are designed to be implemented and upheld by the civil state. But Christianity is a kingdom of the inner life. It is not talking about how to arrange my nation and how to even arrange my tribe or my people group. It is how I arrange my inner life and my relationship with God and my union with other members of my kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus is not that we fast two days a week, everybody the same day. It's not that we do all the right feast days. It's not that we do all the right practices every week. Our union is on our faith. Paul argues that in Ephesians chapter 4. He's talking to the Christians. He says, I so want you guys to be united with each other. Here's what he says, verse 3 of chapter 4. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The very next verse, he tells them the things upon that unity is based. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He doesn't say, I want you to labor for the unity of the Spirit. So everybody on Tuesdays and Fridays fast. So everybody does the Sabbath dinner once a week. So everybody does the... No, it's not an orthoproxy. It's an orthodox. It's our beliefs unite us. It is our inner priorities draw us together. It's why we can be one with people in, in, in Nairobi this morning. Because though their lifestyle is different and their culture is different and their music is different and their daily practice is entirely different, but we can be united and say, the center of my life is Jesus Christ as Lord. I believe in God the Father Almighty. He's the creator of heaven and earth. I believe that one day I'll stand before Christ. I believe that Christ came to die for me, to provide me forgiveness of sins. My unity, my union, my oneness, that, that which brings spirit togetherness among the kingdom of Christ is not our orthopraxy, it's our belief. It is why the creeds have value. They remind us this is the hallway Christians meet at in this generation and throughout the last 2,000 years of world history, no matter where we are no matter what our culture is, no matter what kind of a civil government we have, no matter what our lifestyle is, we gather on these things, and that is why it's needed today.
Today, there is a recognition that Christ-centered, Christ-exalting Christianity is a decided minority worldview. That is absolutely true in the Western world. There is a growing hunger for a sense of connectivity to the historical moorings of our faith, particularly among many younger Christian adults. There is a decided movement, and any authors will tell you this as they look at the landscape of, of the Western world in particular in Christendom, there is a decided movement among many younger adults toward more creedal and confessional declarations in worship and private practice. Why? Because in our fragmented world and our divided society, there is a hunger to embrace the timeless truths of our faith, to be connected in the hallway of history and in the hallway of our world with others who are making the kingdom of Jesus the centrality of their inner lives. The creeds help us do that. They help give us a sense of history. They help give us a sense of, of, of bigness beyond ourselves. It isn't just that we all fast once a week or whatever. No. We've given our lives to these truths. And when we say, I, I believe, I believe, it's, and I've said this many times to you, it is the greatest power of Christian worship, in my opinion. The greatest power of Christian worship is not that you came in here and you get a cool sermon or that you had a great worship set to, to worship by. The greatest power, healing, energizing power of Christian worship is you gather with a few hundred people in a room who in contrast to most of the culture of which we, in which we are living, they are standing and saying, it's true. It's true. I believe it. I staggered into church today. My husband walked out this week. My, I just got the medical report that is absolutely devastating. I just lost my job. I just had the worst work review I've ever had. And I'm stumbling into church. Why? Because there's people there that will say, he's real, he's alive. He is the God of the living and the dead. He is the one who creates the world. He's present, he's accessible. And in our brokenness, we gather together and what we most of all do for each other is just say, I believe, I believe. And it's not just us, they're doing it all over the world in all different cultural contexts, in all different uh, political situations. They've done it for generations. And when we recite the creed, when we do it from our soul and we think about what we're saying, what we're saying is, I'm part of something glorious. I'm part of something big. I'm, I'm in the hallway of history where I'm standing with brothers and sisters all over the world in all generations that are saying, by the grace of God, I've been brought into the kingdom of Christ. I believe. I believe. We're going to close in prayer, and then we're going to have the song that is available to you to listen to by Hillsong each week as you do your Common Life book. It's called This I Believe. And I, I hope as you, as you sing this, and you just think about what you're saying. Think about the people all over the world that have been saying this in worship services in the last 24 hours the people that have been doing this for the last millennia of time, and they've been using words almost exactly 
the way you are using them here because this basically is a rendition of the Apostles' Creed. Lord, we look to you. We gather today as broken people. We've come because we do need the touch of God afresh. God, we need to know you. To the degree this week we've tried to live in our own strength, we've seen our emptiness, we've seen our anger, we've seen our worry, we've seen our discouragement. We're reminded again, we need God. Lord, what a gift worship is. We gather together to simply proclaim the creed. These are the statement of our belief. And we believe, Lord, because you've enabled us to believe, and we love you for it. So God, now receive our worship as we proclaim our trust, our faith, our creed. We believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing together. <laughs>